The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, even as we reflect on tragedies like we saw last week, the good seems to still be very, very stubborn. What do we do with the fact that there is, even in spite of, of very obvious evils in the world, that there is still so much good to be had and experienced? I think that's kind of a weird question. What do we do with the good? But we take good so for granted, there's so much good in the world, we even forget to ask, why? What is it there for? What are we to make of all of the good that you and I experience? I mean, again, evil is real, and evil is like this big, giant splinter in the heart of the world. Make no mistake about that. But there is so much good and so many gifts and blessings that we experience all the time. And what's the source of that? Why do we experience those good things? Have you ever considered that the world doesn't have to be this way? But it is. One story that I think of is a couple of years ago, my family, my parents live in Simpsonville, and so occasionally we'll meet in Purgatory, Woodruff Road, for dinner together. And I remember this one instance, my family, uh, my immediate family went to meet my parents at Fuddruckers on Woodruff Road. We braved the nightmare that is 385 and 85 and all of that. We get to Fuddruckers at Woodruff Road, we're enjoying our cheeseburgers. Uh, uh, some of our kids are kind of playing over at the arcade section on the other side of Fuddruckers, and then my dad started doing magic tricks. Now, my dad is one of those men that was just built to be a grandpa, you know, and, uh, and he just relishes it. And I remember this particular instance, my second son, Nate, was maybe five or six years old, and Papa Knucklehead, which is what they call my dad, <laughs> Papa, there's a story I'll tell you another time, Papa Knucklehead started doing magic tricks. He was doing the thing where you, you move the thumb, he was making uh, little bits of paper disappear, he was pulling pennies out of people's ears, and, and Nate's eyes, I know this is cliche and a little bit corny, but, I mean, they were glittering. They were tinkling. Like, like, looking at Grandpa and seeing these, looking at Papa Knucklehead and seeing these magic tricks, I mean, Nate was just enraptured by this. And, and I remember in that moment looking at Nate and just thinking, this, ah, this, I don't, I don't know what this is, but this. It is so good and so, I mean, otherworldly to see just for, for, a, for a moment the joy that this child had and Papa doing magic tricks. And why is the world that way? Why is there good in the world like Papa doing magic tricks for his grandson? I mean, I've realized every spring, and maybe, maybe you've had this experience, that I have nostalgia for the COVID lockdown days. Somebody, anybody relate with that? The 2020 spring lockdowns, I realized it was not the case for everyone that it was this way, but we actually had a lot of really good memories and good times during that stretch. I mean, the smell of spring and of mulch and of the warmth of the sun and soil, I mean, it takes me back to those days. We took evening walks every night after dinner. My family went and walked around the neighborhood together. We would bake bread. It's like, since when have we baked bread? We baked bread and we introduced our kids to Jello with dollops of Cool Whip on top. I remember doing that during COVID. There's something so good and pure about all of that. And it's like, it's almost like we could say that the good in the world is trying to tell us something, that it's bearing witness to something. Or we might even say it's bearing witness to someone. Now, we are in part three of the book of Acts. Uh, we've been talking about Paul's first missionary journey. 
Last week, we finished chapter 13. Obviously, we're beginning chapter 14 this week. And in Paul's missionary journey, he announces that the Messiah has come, that the Messiah Jesus, in fulfillment of all that God promised to do through the Jewish nation, the King has come, and He has been resurrected and installed in the heavenly places. And all nations owe their allegiance to Jesus. Last week, we saw that the Jews have rejected their birthright, like Esau, trading the promise of of eternal life in Christ for a bowl of soup. They've rejected what was being offered to them, and Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles. Paul delivered previously in chapter 13 one sermon to Jews and God-fearers. But this week, we see Paul and Barnabas are preaching and interacting for the first time with good old-fashioned pagans, pure, outright, godless pagans. Not Gentile God-fearers, not, Greek, uh, not Greeks who had sort of become adopted and assimilated into the Jewish nation, full-blown Greek God-worshipping pagans. And it, it's really something to see what Paul does and to see what Paul says. And he actually tells us that, yes, the good that we experience in the world actually has something to say to us. Let's read again that text that Clark read a few moments ago, starting verse 1. Now at Iconium, I have a map up on the screen for reference just to give us a sense of kind of where these guys are located. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So this portion of Acts 14 is kind of a picture of Paul's ministry. I mean, it's sort of a, it's sort of a model that he's going to follow as we watch Paul do ministry throughout the book of Acts. He goes to the synagogues, he's moving towards people who are receptive, and he's moving away from those folks who aren't receptive. We're told that he remains at Iconium for a long time, teaching and speaking boldly for the Lord. And we're told that the Lord grants signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The key word here is that the Lord is using these miracles to bear witness. All right, so what's taking place is these guys have come to the city. The Jews, it's really interesting too, by the way, that in verse 2, It says, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So it's like a shadow movement has developed of these unbelieving Jews who are following Paul and his missionary journeys and trying to poison the well. It says that they're poisoning their minds. Big Lord of the Rings, strong worm tongue vibes from this passage, if you're familiar with that story. It actually reminds us of what takes place in Acts chapter 13 when the proconsul Sergius Paulus is having his mind poisoned by this magician. And now it's the unbelieving Jews who are doing the mind poisoning. They're the ones who are sowing seeds of doubt about Paul's message. But we're told here that the Lord is using these miracles that they're performing to bear witness. Signs and wonders are often portrayed this way in the scriptures. They're a kind of divine affirmation of the message. It's not the case with all of the miracles in the New Testament, but sometimes it's the case that the Lord chooses to provide these miracles which kind of serve to legitimize the things that the apostles are saying. It's like these guys are preaching this radical message of a resurrected Savior King in the line of David. And so the Lord is graciously allowing this message to be accompanied by these miraculous healings. 
again, which are intended to affirm the things that these guys are saying. The Lord is bearing witness to their message. The kingdom of God is here. The king has taken his throne. And with that comes demonstration of the king's power through the apostles so that the crowds would say, there's something to this message. This is, this is for real. The Lord is bearing witness. But notice how in this section of scripture, how the word both is used twice here. This is, I think, an interesting detail. Verse 1, it says that both Jews and Greeks believe. Both the Jews and the Greeks believe. And then again in verse 5, what does it say? Both Jews and Greeks are doing what? They are conspiring against Paul and Barnabas, formulating an attempt on their lives. Now, this is really important because when we think about Jew-Gentile relations, I kind of think about it like this. I have this image up for us. Jews and Gentiles, they're separated by their customs, they're separated by ethnicity, separated by the covenant, by the law. Even the Gentiles who adopted the law, which the scripture calls God-fears, were still distinct. They weren't full covenant participants. There was still this Jew-Gentile divide between Jews and Gentiles. They didn't have full access or didn't share fully in the covenant promises. But as the gospel is moving forward and as Paul and Barnabas are doing their ministry, we see that the lines are being redrawn in different places, like this. It's no longer Jews and Gentiles separated by their ethnicity. It's now the distinction is belief and unbelief. There's this new budding brotherhood. We've seen building ever since chapter 8. Jews and Gentiles finding themselves to be brothers and sisters in Jesus as one new man. They aren't first Jew and they aren't first Greek. They're Christians. But then there's this kind of shadow brotherhood that's budding as well. A brotherhood of opposition. Unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. And what makes it so tragic is that this is the Jewish Messiah. And these folks are finding themselves as these bedfellows with, with Gentiles in opposition to the preaching of the arrival of the Jewish Messiah. The Jews are uniting with Gentiles as co-belligerents against Jesus and his apostles, against their Savior King. This isn't the first time that we actually see something like this happen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 6, you don't have to look. But after performing a miracle, Mark tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians hold counsel together to destroy Jesus. We, we think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the heresies. We kind of have the, the gospel bad guy bucket, and they're all kind of in that bucket. But, but the reality is, I mean, these were very distinct groups of people who had very different priorities and very different interpretations of the Scriptures. And it says that they even find a way to come together against Jesus. The same thing is taking place here. They find a common object of contempt, and it's Christ and his people. Both Jews and Gentiles are teaming up in belief, in the fellowship of belief in Jesus. And both Jews and Gentiles are teaming up in unbelief, a fellowship of opposition to Jesus. And that's still the truth today, that the gospel interrupts our categories. Jesus himself said that he came to bring a sword, to redraw the lines. And that is exactly what's taken place. Now, I wonder if there's any folks who are here today whose family, whose blood family has rejected them, has, has rejected you because of your belief in Jesus. That you find more of a home here with these people than you do with your blood people. Jesus said, I, I came to bring a sword. I came to redraw the lines around myself. All other distinctions are divided in two. It is about your response to Christ. So as opposition continues and increases, an attempt is made on Paul and Barnabas' life, so they flee to the next cities. They continue to preach the gospel. 
Let's look at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at this man and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Now, this is important because the scriptures have already told us that God is bearing witness to their message through miracles, and then we get one such example of God bearing witness through their miracles. We have this miracle of Paul healing this lame man. Tells us that this man couldn't use his feet. He had never walked. Paul speaks, commands him to stand upright and use your feet. And then he says at the end of verse 10 that he sprang up and began walking. The image I have in my head is like when you see deers kind of boing, 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 boing through the woods. This man springs up, boings right up in response to Paul's command. The Lord is bearing witness to the message through this miracle. And so the people are going to see it and they're going to believe, right? They're going to see and they're going to respond with belief. Look at verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Adventures in Missing the Point, starring the people of Lyconia, right? They see this miracle and they conclude something divine has taken place. But it's not the right kind of divine that's taken place. It's the, God of, has come, the gods have come down as men. It's Zeus and it's Hermes here in our midst. The commentators actually point out that there is a legend of this happening. Like there, There's a legend of Zeus and Hermes actually appearing in this region. And they judge the people who didn't offer them hospitality. So it makes sense that when they see this miracle, they don't, they don't want to make that same mistake in not offering hospitality to Zeus and Hermes. And so they decide, let's offer sacrifices to these guys because that's what's got to be the case. It says that they're speaking in Lyconian. And so Paul and Barnabas don't don't immediately pick up on what's taking place. They aren't yet privy to what's happening. But when they do figure out, verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. They hear that they're going to offer sacrifices to them as these Greek gods, and they say, as soon as they they kind of figure out what's taking place, they tear their garments, which is a sign of grief and repentance. They tear their garments and they rush out and say, please, do not do that. We mentioned this when we looked at chapter 12, that Herod was judged and was eaten by worms for being revered as a god and not giving God glory. And so maybe Paul and, and Barnabas are like, we don't want to make that mistake. Like, let's, let's make sure that they understand we are not in favor of sacrifices being offered to us. But then this becomes an occasion for Paul to preach his sermon. Watch how he, res- he responds in verse 15. They tear their garments, they rush into the crowd, and he cries out, men, Why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness." And then once again, our beloved crowds at Lyconia, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. How does Paul respond? By preaching a sermon. By saying, listen guys, we are just men 
We are of like nature with you. In other words, we are of the same substance. We are not divine at all. We are just a pair of guys. And then what's really remarkable is that when he launches into the sermon, it's actually really different from other earlier sermons we've seen in the book of Acts. Remember, this is the first kind of moment of pure pagan evangelism that we see in the book of Acts. And so, though the good news is the same, the presentation changes. Think about a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 13, and Paul is preaching to a room full of folks who have a, have a strong understanding of the Jewish scriptures. What guides his message? Well, it's those Jewish scriptures. The Messiah that we preach to you is the one who's come to fulfill this scripture, and he's the one who's come to fulfill this scripture, and he's the one who's come to fulfill this scripture. He is the one who is promised of old, the descendant of King David. But Paul doesn't take that approach here. Paul does something dramatically different. In fact, what we see Paul modeling is good missionary teaching. He is seeking to speak in a way that the people hear it, in a way that it registers with the folks that he's preaching to. He's laboring to find common ground, and he's beginning there. What Paul is modeling is something that theologians and and missiologists refer to as contextualization, which is a big fancy word for saying, when we preach the gospel to people, we want to make sure that we preach it in a way that it registers with the hearer. We're trying to find ways to make the faith understandable to a particular group of people in a way that doesn't compromise the integrity of the faith. That's what Paul's doing here. We don't want to be ignorant, of course, because... One risk that we can run when we try and contextualize and bring the gospel to bear in a particular situation is is we can fall into the ditch of syncretism, which is trying so hard to communicate in a way that people understand it that you ultimately lose the message. It's kind of like getting your sugar to water ratio off in lemonade. It's either all sugar water or all lemon juice or whatever. There's a little bit of a balance you want to strike. You don't want to so contextualize that you lose the gospel. But what Paul models here is a movement towards people and speaking to people where they're at. His starting point isn't Jewish history like other sermons. Imagine Paul standing up here saying, you know the promises to King David? And they'd say, no, (laughs) we don't know the promises to King David. So where does Paul start? He says, we come bringing good news that there is a living God. He says, listen, behind all that exists, this, this is good news, behind all that exists There is a living God who beckons us to turn from vain idols in a worship of vain gods. It says, in the past he allowed nations to walk in their own ways, yet this God, though unacknowledged by those people, he still did not leave himself without, what? Witness. It's interesting that the word witness reappears in this sermon after it's already been identified or singled out for us earlier in this passage. Paul says, though these folks worshipped vain idols, though they, they, they did not give the Lord honor and glory, the Lord still bore witness to them. How? Verse 17. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What Paul helps us to see is, is actually it turns out that the good that we experience is telling us something. Paul says God is not like pagan gods whose arm you have to twist through sacrifices to convince him to give you rain begrudgingly. God isn't moody. His gifts of rains and seasons are not because he woke up on the right side of the bed. 
No, he has shown his character in giving to you. Even though you did not give him honor, he still, look at the, look at the phrasing here, satisfies your hearts with food and gladness. He is the one who is behind heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. It's not Zeus or whoever else. It is the one true living God who gives us blessings of goodness. And through those blessings, beckons us to himself. Now, anytime the, the sun starts to shine and anytime the weather starts to warm up, Casey always makes fun of me for talking about food a lot. So we're going to talk about food for a second. It always makes me think of certain summer dishes. And there's one summer dish that I cannot wait to enjoy. Have you ever had angel food cake with strawberries that have been like steeped for decades in syrup? And so it like loses any nutritional value. You have the strawberries and then you, you kind of put it on the angel food cake and it just like seeps into all the pores and it's like all dense with strawberry goodness. And then you put a little dollop of Cool Whip on top of that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, some of you, I see some people saying amen and kind of nodding their heads. Hey, maybe, maybe that's grandma's dish that she makes at Easter Sunday and it's coming for lunch next Sunday afternoon. Christian theology teaches that, in a sense, every flower and bird and tree and cloud and strawberry are, listen, like angel food cake dense with strawberry juice. It is all dense with the goodness and glory of God because it comes from God. The world is dense with His goodness. And all of the good that we experience is because it is downstream from a good and gracious and kind and loving God. So Paul says, the goodness that you experience is telling you something, pagans. He doesn't appeal to the stories of King David. He, he appeals to their experience of strawberry shortcake. And he says, listen, God gave that to you. There is one God who's behind all of it. And though you did not give him honor, he still graciously gave those things to you. The goodness of the world is telling us something about the God who's behind the world. A couple of years ago, I came across this article from N.D. Wilson it's just so, so good. The, the title of the article is called Lighten Up Christians, God Loves a Good Time. He, he's wondering in this article, why are Christians so dour when just on the evidence of creation alone, our God is filled with joy? Listen to this. A dolphin flipping through the sun beyond the surf, a falcon in a dive, a mutt in the back of a truck flying his tongue like a flag of joy. All reflect the maker more holy than many of our endorsed thinkers, theologians, and churchgoers. Our Father wove glory and joy into every layer of this world. He wove in secrets that would tease us into centuries of risk-taking before we could unlock them. Flight, glass, electricity, chocolate. He buried gold deep but scattered sand everywhere, and from the sand came all the wealth of our own age. Our God made things simple and funny. Skin bags full of milk swinging beneath cows. <laughs> and also hard. Skim the cream. Add sugar from cane grass and shards of vanilla bean from faraway lands. Surround with water cold enough to have expanded its mo molecules and become solid. Now stir. Keep stirring. Now taste and worship. God hung easily picked fruit on trees and he hid the secrets of fine wine at the end of a scavenger hunt. He made horses with strong, flat backs, lending themselves to an obvious use, and he hid jet wings behind the mysteries of steel and fossil fuels. Without any creative help at all, our God made up peanuts and bulgy tubers. Squeeze out the peanut oil and boil it. Slice the tubers and throw them in. Now add salt from the sea. Us, those will kill you. God, take and eat. 
We say that we would like to be more like God, so be more thrilled with moonlight and babies and what makes them, and holding on to one lover until you've been aged to wine, ready to pour. Holiness is nothing like a building code. Holiness is 80-year-old hands crafting an apple pie for others again. It is aspen trees and a backlit breeze. It is fire on the mountain. The goodness of our world is telling us something. This is the good world that God has made. Creation is not like chance materialism. We just happen to be on this blue ball in the middle of billions of stars. No, God created all things dense with his goodness. Creation is also not like the God of pantheism. No, creation isn't an end in itself. It gets better because creation bears witness to something, to someone who is better than all of these things. The good of the world is telling us something about the God of this world. And I just, how did you hear that this morning? Can you see it? I know our vision is clouded with, 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 with fog and darkness and smoke, and it is clouded with tragedy. But can you still see this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle with belief. You even wonder, is it knowable that God exists? And I would just ask you to consider, what if Paul is right about your experience of good things? It's little cracks of sunlight in a room with no windows. And could that be God calling you to himself beckoning you through these experiences. Verse 18, again, I just love the reaction. It's, it's comical. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Once again, adventures in missing the point starring these crowds, misreading God's witness. What's actually really interesting, I think, about this passage is in some ways, it's kind of a picture of all of us. That's kind of a picture of a human tendency for God to bear witness about himself and for us to whiff completely. Paul, later on in his ministry, actually expands on this idea that he writes in a letter to the church at Rome just a few decades after this fact. I almost wonder if as he's writing these words to the church at Rome, he's reflecting on this experience. I have this on the screen. This comes from Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says God bears witness through creation. He has stamped it on the soul of every human. God's thumbprint is there. tells us that He exists, that He is powerful, that He is good. But we don't pick up on the signals. We miss the point as a race. We exchange the glory of God for created things. And and now Paul is preaching the gospel that he is not ashamed to preach, which he mentions just two verses prior. He's telling us that now God is bearing witness through an even greater gift, even better than all of those things. God did actually come in the form of a man, but it wasn't just Zeus or Hermes or one of those lame, vain gods. In love, the God behind all of creation sent his son Jesus to be born of woman to redeem idolaters. 
Romans 5, 8, even when we were enemies, when we were missing the point, Christ died for us. God is now bearing witness through His Son, Jesus. And it's a witness we can hardly bear because it's so good. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just ask you, how do you, how do you explain goodness apart from this Christian story? I mean, has there, ever, has there ever been a moment where you were driving, listening to a piece of music, and it was so beautiful that it just moved you to tears inexplicably? I was driving to Greenville the other day, listening to the Braveheart soundtrack. And those bagpipes, man, just got me just right. Have you ever seen a child's delight at grandpa's magic trick? How do you explain that? Did we just happen into the capacity to enjoy this stuff, but it's all an illusion? Or is this stuff telling us something about the true story of the whole world? Poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning says this, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. Could you turn from vain things to a living God? Do you feel the emptiness of modern life? You experience the vanity and the blandness of the room without windows. Could it be that there's a God behind all of this who is beckoning you to himself with these good gifts? I think there is. Unashamedly, I think there is, and I invite you to consider these things. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, what I'd say to you is this is the God of the gospel. The God who dreamed up strawberry shortcake is the God who sent his son, Jesus. 80-year-old hands making apple pie again. Whose idea do you think that was? And that God has befriended us in Christ. The same impulse that led him to give us all of these good things is the same impulse that sends his son to die for you, friend. Christian, renew your joy in this gracious, loving, kind, good God. In the next few moments, we're going to just take some time to consider some of the things that have been said this morning and to consider Paul's sermon from so many years ago. If you're not a Christian, I, I'm, I'm going to invite you just to wrestle with what's been said. Uh, after worship is over, I'm going to be here in the lobby. You can come grab me if you'd like to talk. Aaron uh, will be posted back here. And, and if you're here with somebody, I know for a fact that they would love to talk with you about the meaning of these things. We're going to take a few moments just to reflect here in these next few moments. Then after that, we're going to stand and sing once again to the God who bears witness to himself through melodies and harmonies. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the many millions of ways that you've blessed us. We thank you for all of these good gifts that we've laughed and reflected on this morning. But we pray that you give us um, the sober-mindedness to see the truth as to what these things mean. And I pray that we would see the, the truth of the greatest gift, who is Jesus, who offers his life for us. And, and I pray for those of us who believe that we would, we would find ourselves stirred to worship again and we would find our love deepened for you and we would find our desire to obey and devote ourselves to you. We pray that it would just penetrate deeper and deeper in us. 
And I pray for friends who are here this morning who are not Christians. I pray that they would be confronted with what's been said this morning. And that they, they would see that every bush is burning with your glory, God. And Lord Jesus, we pray that your spirit would move in the next few moments and would give us clarity on how you would have us to respond. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.